The Bishop of Bath and Wells was a burly, pugnacious man in his early middle age who could be very powerful and demanding in his speech. But at the moment, he seemed on his warmest and most congenial behavior. This, in spite of what he announced as a mere slightly twisted ankle, but which required him to limp and use a walking stick. He had come, with a small gold crucifix to be a present of his own, to thank them for the white Chinese silk altar cloth material Angie had been able to get through Carolinus's Eastern Magician connections. The cloth itself had been a thank-you gift from Angie for the bishop's help in getting the English king to give Jim ward of the orphaned baby, Robert Fallon. Today, the bishop had brought part of the silk, already made into the frontal of one altar cloth, to show it off. So went the intricate business of gift-giving in the high Middle Ages. I have just had word, the good prelate had begun by saying, once he, Jim, and Angie were safely private below Malencontre's tower-top in the solar apartment. He had reached for another small cake, that the plague has reached London. But it's too early, Jim almost said aloud before he caught himself. In the history of his world and Angie's, the plague had only just reached Genoa in a rat-infested ship sometime between the years of 1347 and 1349. The times of their world and this were out of whack. They were not just off by a set number of years, as the early Julian calendar and the later modern one of Jim and Angie's future century had been found to be. Various important incidents, like the deaths of kings, or the year of a decisive battle seemed to be taking place here at unexpectedly different times. Meanwhile, having stunned his two listeners with his news, the good bishop took up his wine glass and sipped from it. Yes, he went on, it moves swiftly. Already there are villages in France where not a soul has survived. I thought those were just stories, said Jim. Unfortunately, they are true. Sir James. The fiend is among us, and it is our duty not only within the church but without to do what we can to deny him at least some of his victims. These last words came out with a more steely edge than Jim had expected to hear, even from this prelate. The bishop, Richard de Bisby, came from one of those families of the upper nobility called magnates, families such as that of the Earl of Oxford, families in which, under the rule of primogeniture, the eldest son inherited everything, and the younger sons were either sent into the church or pointed toward the military. In the bishop's case, this had made him a prelate who might actually have been happier in life with a sword in his hand rather than a crozier. Certainly, he was built to take on the duties of a medieval swordsman from his ruddy, tough-featured face to his meaty, powerful-looking hands. But this was a new bishop, a different, fully ecclesiastical bishop, very much a leader who thought in the long terms of the church and the survival of his communicants. It seemeth, he was saying now, there is no medicine for it, no salves to ease the pain of the cruel buboes of those dying from it, so that they are already in hell before they die. Carolinus tells me, Sir James, that you and the Lady Angela— Come from a far place. Could it be that either of you know more of this plague and what might be done to stop it than we do? Information rushed from the back of Jim's mind. As a graduate student working toward a degree as a medievalist, 
He had done a paper on the plague, and facts jumped forward, only to be pushed back before he could utter them. He could tell the tough-looking man sitting opposite him nothing that would stop the disease or cure those who had caught it. The medical terms that would explain the known later-day details would make no sense in this time.